Hello, CFL fans. Welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon. Glad to be back for another big week of football and the wagering that goes along with it. As always, we're going to review everything that went down last week before jumping into our previews of this week's all-important Labor Day rivalry games. But before we do that, I'll quickly remind you that you can get in touch with me by following on Twitter at KDrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-88, or leaving a comment at firstlinepicks.com. All questions and comments are more than welcome, and I will never get tired of talking betting or football, so keep them coming. Last week kicked off in Edmonton on Friday night, with first place in the West up for grabs, and the Bombers came out on the road with their backup quarterback and found a way to grind out a win over the Eskimos and take a firm hold on top spot in the division heading into Labor Day. Winnipeg didn't make this one look pretty with just seven complete passes for 89 yards on the evening, but the ground game was once again the key for their offense as Andrew Harris and Chris Strevler combined for nearly 200 rushing yards on a rainy evening that played to Winnipeg's strengths. You wouldn't call it a great performance from the offense despite seeing 34 points on the scoreboard, but they were timely with their production and never really let Edmonton get the upper hand on them managing to come up with just enough production to hold off a second-half push by the Eskimos, who trailed for most of the evening. The story for the Eskimos will end up being that of a team who did enough good things to put themselves in position to win the football game, but once again found ways to stifle their own cause and came up short against a strong team. This game was reminiscent in a lot of ways of the Week 3 loss in Winnipeg, as they outgained their opponent by a ridiculous 238 yards on offense, but a first-half pick six to put them in chase position for the rest of the night, combined with more red zone inefficiency and a couple of very costly penalties late in the fourth quarter, ended up doing just enough damage to lose this game. There was definitely a segment of people out there who were a little skeptical of this team's 6-3 and record coming into this game, correctly pointing out the four of those wins have come against cellar-dwelling line and Argonaut squads, while the two others were narrow home wins over Ottawa and the Alouettes in their opening game of the year. I was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, considering the losses to Calgary and Winnipeg had largely been the product of preventable errors, but another failure to get over on a strong opponent definitely lends more credibility to those who've cast doubt on their legitimacy as a Grey Cup contender, and the pressure on them heading into the Labor Day series with Calgary has been increased after losing this crucial swing game. It's not often that a team's defensive performance can largely be boiled down to the efforts of a single player, but if it's possible for a defensive player to carry his team to victory in the CFL, we saw Willie Jefferson do it on the Winnipeg defensive line. This guy was everywhere all night, deflecting the pass that Marcus Rios intercepted and took the distance, forcing a Trevor Harris fumble, and making a spectacular play on the hands team to prevent Edmonton from making what would have been a crucial onside kick recovery. Willie's been in the league for a handful of years now, and he was always an effective player, but he's found a way to turn things up a notch this year and starting to get some mentions in Defensive Player of the Year discussions. And speaking of turning things up a notch, the Rough Riders' defense showed some shades of last year's unit, picking off three balls in the first quarter to pretty much put their game against Ottawa away before it ever really got going, eventually beating up the Red Blacks to the tune of 40-18. Ottawa actually got some good news coming into this one as John Crockett was a late-week addition to the roster, but alas, if the Red Blacks didn't have bad luck, they'd have no luck at all, and Crockett exited this game early in the second quarter with what appeared to be a shoulder injury, and he did not return. But the real damage had already been done by that point by Dominic Davis, who flat-out threw away any real chance Ottawa had of winning this football game in the early going, 
completing as many passes to players wearing green jerseys as to his own team, and getting the quick hook after pick number three. Jonathan Jennings came into the game and was able to settle things down, and did actually have the Red Blacks back in position to at least cover the minus 10 number that this game hung out for most of the week leading up to kickoff. But overall, there was still not very much to get excited about on offense, which graded out at a pitiful 36% success rate and and really achieved very little outside of the 75-yard touchdown strike to Dominic Rimes shortly before halftime. It's tough to really gauge the impact new play caller Joe Paupau had for Ottawa. Obviously, his game plan was built around having Davis in a quarterback with Crockett in the backfield, and that lasted about one whole quarter. He was willing to run the ball intermittently on first down, despite a multi-score deficit for the entire night, and in an effort to keep the offense on schedule. Unfortunately, they were completely ineffective in doing so, with the Riders' defense stuffing Greg Morris repeatedly, who got inserted at halfback after Crockett went down. I think they got a little conservative in the second half with some of the calls, but you have to consider that the Riders' defense was playing to prevent the big play at that point. And with the effectiveness of the front four, they were able to drop linebackers into coverage on passing downs, and they just ate Ottawa up in those situations, successfully defensing 15 out of 20 second down passing attempts. Offensively, Cody Fajardo took full advantage of the early turnovers and short fields to quickly put this game all but out of reach. They didn't really do anything spectacular out there, but they were effective and efficient and did more than enough to win with the helping hand the defense provided. More mistake-free football from Fajardo, who's looking a lot more like a seasoned veteran back there than a guy with just half a season as a starter under his belt. And it's looking more and more like the Toronto Argonauts have continued a recent trend of supplying other franchises with starting quarterbacks. If you'll remember, Zach Caleros and Trevor Harris both came into the league in the Argos organization and went on to star with Hamilton and Ottawa respectively before ever really getting a look there. To be fair, those guys weren't beating Ricky Ray out for a job, but you've got to bang your head in frustration if you're an Argonauts fan, knowing that you had Fajardo waiting in the wings for an opportunity that he never did get there, while James Franklin looks to be at risk of having his career fizzle out and McLeod Bethel-Thompson continues to be hit and miss. Second half of the Saturday doubleheader took us out to Vancouver, where the Lions put up a good fight. A little too good of a fight for some of us, unfortunately but ultimately came up short with a 13-10 defeat at the hands of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. The market was split on this game, with BC backers coming out ahead after a Lions touchdown with just 31 seconds remaining, and the ensuing converts snuck them inside the 3.5 number. You may recall me stating last week that buying half points in relation to the key number of 3 is the one spot where I think it's sometimes worthwhile to do so, and lo and behold, buying your way past the hook on the Hamilton side at least produced a push rather than a loss. A bit of an odd game here with neither offense doing great things, though a 13-10 final probably overstates that a little. Hamilton was able to move the ball fairly effectively on first downs, but executed poorly in a lot of second and manageable situations, converting on just 7 of 19 second down pass attempts. I'm not really sure why there was such a reluctance to run against the Lions defense that's been getting gashed along the ground for weeks, but it nearly ended up costing them on a night where Dane Evans barely missed on a number of throws, but missed nonetheless, and sent the punt team out onto the field more often than they would have liked. The BC defense came to play though, you've got to give those guys some credit for the game they had, managing to keep it within sight as their offense once again failed to get it done. This unit has actually looked pretty solid over the last two games, and the one thing that has broke right for the Lions this year is that they've managed to avoid injuries on this side of the ball for the most part. Their depth was a concern coming into the season, fortunately for them it hasn't needed to be tested yet. 
So we'll see if that continuity is able to pay any dividends moving into the second half of the season. But offensively, it was another fire drill along the line and what's become a real talking point across the CFL. Seven sacks given up in this one, the majority of those with four-man pressure, and regardless of the shuffling that's taken place, this Lions offensive line just doesn't seem to have any answers right now, and I'd almost say they're getting worse if that's possible. Once again, the Lions made enough positive plays on first down that it actually would be an acceptable production in isolation, but the extreme amount of negative plays undoes it and then some. No one passing situations were a complete disaster, as they usually are when your protection is non-existent, and as usual, we're all left wondering why a run game that was picking up decent chunks quite regularly when given the chance wasn't utilized more often. When your quarterback is getting outright sacked on one out of five dropbacks and pressured on plenty of others, passing the ball 40 times just doesn't strike me as a great idea. BC's run-pass distribution on standard downs was nearly a 50-50 split two weeks ago against this same Tiger Cats team, and they put 35 points on the board. And drifting back into the problematic 70-30 split for this game produced predictable results as far as I'm concerned. Not the most attractive of wins for Hamilton, but they've made hay against the teams they needed to before the schedule toughens up for them after Labor Day, and they're very well positioned at 8-2 heading into the Labor Day Classic this weekend. Their opponent in that clash will of course be the Toronto Argonauts, who let a game they desperately needed to win slip away on Sunday, falling 28-22 to the Montreal Alouettes after failing to punch it in from the 3-yard line after a 97-yard drive on the final possession put them in position to steal a late win. As predicted here last week, the Argos indeed came out throwing early and often, and they carved the Alouettes up for over 450 yards through the air, but bad execution at a couple critical moments meant it was all for naught in the end. McLeod Bethel Thompson operated quickly and by and large effectively, and while the time of possession was fairly close, Toronto ran significantly more offensive plays than the Alouettes did. It's hard to believe they only managed to score six points in the second half, but Montreal was able to stop the bleeding, and it's reassuring to see Bob Slowick's defense make the adjustments they needed to in the second half. This defense had been trending in the wrong direction for about three and a half quarters of gameplay but they got the helping hand they needed with a, a very costly Argos fumble very late in the first half, just as the boatmen were looking like they were going to put the game out of reach at first and goal on the five-yard line. And they were able to, you know, do enough good things the rest of the way to get the victory in the end. The Montreal offense was barely treading water in the first half of this game as well, but they turned, turned the game around on the first play from scrimmage in the second half as Vernon Adams connected with Eugene Lewis, and in the course of about one minute of actual gameplay, the score went from looking like it was going to be a 17-point Toronto lead to just a three-point lead. It was really three big plays that spoiled things for a Toronto defense that probably had this Owls offense otherwise looking as ordinary as they've looked all year under Adams. But true to form, Kahari Jones managed this game extremely well on first downs and kept the Owls out of second and long. Montreal's only had to deal with second and eight or more on 17 out of 48 second down snaps over their last two games. And if you stay on schedule and keep your options open on second down calls, you give yourself enough opportunities that eventually those explosive plays are going to present themselves. And they ended up hitting on five passes of 25 plus yards with three of those being touchdowns, and that's what ultimately let them win a game they probably got outplayed in, all things considered. From a competitive balance standpoint, this was a disappointing set of results, in the sense that the six playoff teams have pretty much been decided by Labor Day. At 1-9, BC could run the table and potentially still not move out of fifth place, so safe to say the final nail has been driven into their coffin. 
Toronto could have been within four points of a playoff spot and certainly planted a seed of doubt if they'd been able to find a way to win on Sunday, but this loss pretty well ends any realistic hope of a second half, second half rally to the playoffs for them. And Ottawa is still breathing at 3-7, and seven, but they've got a lot of work to do. The Alouettes and the Red Blacks do meet on the final week of the season, and the winner of that game will get the season series tiebreaker, so definitely potential to make that last game count if the Red Blacks can string together a few wins. It would take a pretty big second-half implosion from one of the four Western teams with winning records to avoid having a crossover again, though it's worth pointing out that the incumbent, for lack of a better term, does get the nod in the event of a tie in the standings, so technically Ottawa does own the tiebreaker over any potential crossover team. Looking at the respective schedules, Ottawa, BC, and Toronto still have several games against one another. These games definitely have potential to be handicapping nightmares, especially with NFL cuts starting to trickle in and the potential for new blood to find its way into the lineup. But the flip side is, we've also got a second half schedule chock full of big games between teams fighting for positioning and home field advantage come November, so there's going to be a lot of great games down the stretch as well. Labor Day weekend in 2019 will be limited to the three traditional rivalry games as the Lions, Red Blacks, and Alouettes will all sit this one out on bye weeks. For the Owls, this will be their third and final bye week of the season. I'm not sure how it came to pass that one team in particular had all three bye weeks scheduled into the first half of the season, but this is a tough break for Montreal who will have to play ten straight weeks from this point onwards. The first game of the week won't take place until Sunday afternoon, with Regina playing host to the historic Riders-Blue Bombers matchup. The line for this game opened with a, the home side as a firm minus 6.5 favourite, with 47.5 for an over-under. A number like this would certainly have been worthy of a double-take if not for the news that broke early Monday morning, just before lines were going to get posted, that Andrew Harris was going to be suspended after a positive test for a banned substance. This is no doubt a huge blow to Winnipeg, already missing their starting quarterback, and now we're tasked with determining whether or not bumping this line up close to a touchdown was an overreaction, or perhaps even an underreaction from the books. I'm guessing the Riders were going to open favored by 2.5 or 3 for reference, so this is a very significant move to happen over a non-quarterback personnel deletion. Winnipeg has the top-rated rushing attack in the CFL right now, and it's not particularly close either. 59% of Bombers runs grade successful, and they've run more than anybody else to compound that. And they lead the league in runs of 10-plus yards by a pretty good margin as well. Harris's combination of speed and power and hands out of the backfield is unmatched in the CFL right now, and there's really no way he can be fully replaced in this offense. Nick Dembski will probably see some more carries, and he likely slides into Harris's spot on swing routes and screens and Johnny Augustine will probably be the primary on standard run calls. He's a second-year pro out of Guelph who's had about a game's worth of carries in his career so far, with a very good average of 6.9 yards per carry. Importantly, both of these guys are Canadian, so Mike O'Shea doesn't have to worry about doing any shuffling in the lineup due to ratio concerns. How much of the slack are these guys going to pick up? Well, I think they're in a decent position to succeed, and they'll be running behind one of the best offensive lines in the league, and they've got a good schemer in Paul Lapolice drawing up the offense. I, I don't think you're losing too much in the open field once you've hit the second level with these guys, but Harris's ability to drag a tackler for an extra three yards after early contact is going to be missed more than anything. And the timing of this suspension really couldn't be worse for the Bombers, with, with Harris set to miss both legs of this back-to-back -back set against the, the team that is now chasing Winnipeg for first place. 
If Saskatchewan were to win both of these games, they would leapfrog the Bombers into first place and of course hold the tiebreaker should it come to that. So a nice break for the Riders here, whose opponents haven't pissed a drop along the ground as it is since way back in week 6. In their last four games, that defense has held opponents to just a 37% success rate along the ground, with only three explosives given up on 49 standard rushes. That does come with the qualifier that they got to face Montreal without standback, Ottawa with Crockett going down earlier, and Hamilton just before Marshall got back into the lineup. So they've stopped Anthony Coombs, Jeremiah and Johnson, and Greg Morris. Not exactly murderer's row there, but you still have to win the battle along the line to stuff somebody regardless of who it is, so I wouldn't totally discount the recent success. My concern here from the Winnipeg perspective is, is Saskatchewan stacking eight men inside the box all afternoon and daring Chris Strevler to try and beat them over the top. Strevler made a lot happen with his legs last week, but was limited to less than 100 yards through the air. I think Edmonton was a little slow to adjust to the dual threat of Strevler running it himself or dumping it off, but there's a full fresh game worth of film for Craig Dickinson and the coaching staff to study this week, and I'd be surprised if Strevler had anywhere near 100 yards himself on the ground again. But the running game isn't the only area of upheaval in Winnipeg this week, with the release of receiver Chris Matthews yesterday catching a lot of people off guard. Hopes had definitely been higher for Matthews, who has just 12 catches this year with some time missed to injury and I'd have to think salary cap implications might have played a role here. Darvin Adams is back practicing and presumably getting activated for this week's game, and Winnipeg has been given serviceable play. From their depth, guys like Drew Waltarski and Daniel Peterman when they've been called upon, so this was probably a case of a highly paid body not really contributing anything that a lower paid body couldn't with the way this offense is designed. On the other side of the ball, this will be the Winnipeg defensive line's first foray into battle against a quarterback with Cody Fajardo's mobility, so this is going to be an interesting test. This defense has probably been the most consistent in the CFL this year, and they managed to get the job done against Edmonton, at least on the scoreboard, despite the alarming number of explosive plays given up. Containment is going to be crucial here, and this will be a very welcome time for Adam Bighill to really assert himself as he's shown himself capable of for quite a number of years. Only two games this year with, with more than three tackles, and, and that's a number that we'll need to expand if the Bombers are going to keep Fajardo in the pocket and prevent William Powell from churning up yards between the hash marks. But I think the main point of worry here for Winnipeg has to be Fajardo's ability to beat them deep. We've now seen Winnipeg's secondary get victimized in three of their past four games, and they gave up a season-high nine explosive passes of 20 yards or more against Edmonton last week. The willingness to play zone and try to tighten things up at the 30-yard line has characterized this defense recently, and they've managed to implement this quite effectively throughout the year, besides the Toronto game where it burned them. I think Saskatchewan probably tries to test them early, they haven't been afraid to do that this year. And the matchup between Shaq Evans and presumably Marcus Sales is going to be one to keep an eye on. So this one opened minus 6.5, early action went the way of the Bombers nudging it down to 5.5 and, and now it's back sitting at 6 flat in some places with, with a few 5.5 still on the board. Um, a lot of moving parts to untangle in this one which lends itself to some back and forth as better start to take positions. Saskatchewan had a pretty easy schedule up to this point when you take into account the situation their opponent has found themselves in in terms of injury. So it's hard to fully grasp just where exactly this team stands in relation to the other Western teams, who've all played each other in recent weeks. As luck would have it, this game, and obviously the next one as well, will be more the same going up against a shorthanded offense. One thing that doesn't come into play very often, but just might on Labor Day, is the psychological factor. 
Mosaic Stadium is loud and hostile, and that's always amplified for this game, and, and it's a game where the Blue Bombers have seldom been successful throughout history. There's always been that underlying sense on Labor Day that the Riders were in the Bombers' heads, even in years where Winnipeg has rolled in there with the better team. And last year's loss and the Nichols-induced shellacking in the Banjo Bowl rematch the week after is certainly something that I doubt any veteran members of the team have forgotten about. In terms of the spot, I see this as another advantage for the Riders. They had a nice tune-up game at home last week against Ottawa, which was on the heels of a bye. So they've been comfortably at home the last two weeks now with lots of time to prep for this game, probably even at the same time as they were getting ready for the Red Blacks. Winnipeg won a dig-deep-and-grind-it-out type of game on the road last week in Edmonton with a pair of divisional wins over Calgary and BC in the prior weeks. So you wonder how many weeks in a row they're going to be able to perform at an optimal level, and, and I fear for them if they fall behind early in this game. They're not a team that ever looks all that comfortable playing from behind, partly because they seldom are. But there's one criticism to be had of this offense, it's that they tend to panic easily, and if they fall behind and get caught trying to force things downfield, which we saw in some of in the loss to Hamilton earlier this year, um, you know that's when mistakes have, have tended to creep up for this offense. I can't help but think Saskatchewan comes out swinging in this one, trying to ride the momentum of the crowd, and, and if they're successful early, I, I could see this turning into a situation where mentally Winnipeg falls into a regroup and get them next week line of thinking. That might be the biggest underlying challenge Mike O'Shea will have, trying to make sure this group is mentally prepared if they take a couple punches early. This game isn't until Sunday, so lots of time still to evaluate and see if the market makes a strong move in one direction or the other on this number. But if I had to pick one side or the other right this moment, I'm definitely leaning Saskatchewan's way with history firmly on their side. Total-wise, I think if you can get a competent offensive performance out of Chris Strevler, this game should make its way over the 48 points that it currently sits at. Both of these teams operate effectively in the red zone, and the return games are both potent. We haven't seen a kickoff go the distance for a couple of weeks now, which is an eternity by this year's standards, and Janarian Grant, Lucky Whitehead, Marcus Thigpen, and Luchez Purify are four men fully capable of reversing that trend. With such a boisterous crowd, don't be shocked if we see a couple borderline penalty calls from the 30,000-plus referees in the stands to extend a drive, or the subsequent makeup calls the other way either, so that's one small factor that might not normally come into play. Toronto heads down the highway to Hamilton for the annual Labor Day rivalry game, and with these teams at opposite ends of the standings, the Tiger Cats have opened as minus 13 favorites, with the total set just a touch over 50 at the moment. This will be another tough opponent on the road for the Argonauts, who will now have played games at Hamilton, Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg, and Saskatchewan, but if Toronto is going to have any hope at all of making a second-half push to at least make things interesting, it has to start on Monday. If there's any reason for optimism right now, it's the fact that Toronto has looked pretty effective on offense for three straight games now, and while there's still turnover and red zone efficiency issues to sort out, McLeod Bethel-Thompson is looking as good as he has up to any point in his career right now, and they're at least giving themselves a chance in these football games. Running back James Wilder was again a late scratch for Sunday's game, and the Brandon Burks-Chris Rainey duo looked very effective, grading 73% successful on 15 carries. Toronto's effectiveness on offense this year in terms of scoring points has been very closely tied to the efficiency of their run game, and it looks like Jacques Delane might have finally figured this out as well. The Hamilton defense has been surprisingly volatile in terms of their ability to stop the run this year, grading out at a 46% defensive success rate, which is below average. 
but they've really been up and down in, in achieving that. BC, of all teams, was having their way with this defensive front until John White got dinged up last game, which was a trend in the previous game between those teams, so recent form hasn't been great. The Ticats haven't officially put Ted Laurent or Adrian Tracy on the injured list, but neither played last week, and in the case of Tracy, who got injured in warm-up, I'd be surprised if we saw him out there this week based on how things looked with a possible arm or shoulder injury. We should have a roster announcement sometime on Saturday, I would think, so those are two names to watch for. If the Argonauts are able to establish the run, it goes without saying that the passing game is going to be better for it. This offensive line has been on the leaky side this year, and Hamilton likes to bring pressure. If they can hold up, Bethel Thompson should have options downfield, and he's had this passing game humming along lately, with over one-third of his passing attempts going for 10-plus yards over the last three weeks. But we saw what the Tiger Cats blitz packages can do in the first meeting of the season between these teams, where the Argonaut offensive line got ragdolled. This is certainly a more battle-tested group at this point, and their ability to at least tread water against Edmonton two weeks ago is possibly an indicator that they can hang in there in this one. But it's imperative that they force Orlando Steinauer to respect the possibility of a run on standard downs to keep the heat dialed down. This will be the first Labor Day Classic as a starter for Dane Evans, who got the all-important win last week, but had a fairly forgettable performance in doing so. I don't think they called a particularly good game on offense, and I almost got the sense that there was a, a bit of a lack of respect for the opposing defense with the way they went about their business in that one. The number of downfield shots Hamilton took in second and manageable situations struck me as a bit odd considering A, how solid Cameron Marshall's play has been since he came off the injured list, and B, how porous the lines have been against the run. There seemed to be a let's just catch them with a couple deep ones and put this thing to bed vibe watching them, and it ended up being a game the Tiger Cats probably lose if they don't end up coming up with a couple end zone interceptions on defense to take BC points off the board. They can't afford to try the same thing against Toronto, who appears to have an offense capable of punishing their mistakes at the moment. Their offensive line ran the Argonauts over the first time these teams met, and pretty much anyone who has made a commitment to running the ball has had success against this defense this year. It's tough to single out anyone as particularly problematic on the Argonauts' defense right now, but they've held, seldom had anyone step up with a big play either this year. There's been way too many guys just out there occupying space and hoping somebody runs into them, and Marshall is a running back who can break tackles and run right over you if he needs to, and, and he should feature prominently in this offense. Dane Evans needs to clean up the interceptions, plain and simple. With Brandon Banks, Braylon Addison, and now Jalen Acklin in there as bonafide playmakers at receiver, he can afford to put balls in tighter spots if that means putting them where only his receiver can get his hands on it, because this is a group that can make the tough catches. In saying that, Banks had a brutal drop last Saturday, but he's absolutely wrecked the Argonauts' secondary in recent times, and I believe he's had at least 100 yards receiving against them in five or six straight games over the past three seasons now. So, going up against the secondary that continues to bleed yardage like no other, I'd, I'd definitely bet on a big performance out of Banks on Monday. This game has seen most of the early money coming in on Toronto, not surprising at such a big number, and we're now down sitting at 11 or 11.5 in most shops. From a numbers perspective, the Argos are the easy play here with the way they've moved the ball lately, combined with some pretty ordinary results for the Hamilton offense under Evans, but you have to wonder about Toronto in this spot in particular, coming off another heartbreaking loss that has them all but dead and buried. 
The way Hamilton completely dominated both lines of scrimmage in the first meeting is probably my biggest hang-up when it comes to backing the Argos, but the way Hamilton struggled, relatively speaking, in their two narrow victories over the down-and-out Lions, and the way they let Ottawa hang around two weeks ago would definitely scare me off of double digits in this one. The 51.5 total does look somewhat appealing here if the weather holds up. Things can change in a hurry, but it does look like ideal weather for Monday in Hamilton, and the over is looking reasonably attractive at this number. The Tiger Cats' relative strength on defense and the inconsistency their offense has shown under Evans is definitely something that has to be weighed, but against a defense that continues to get ventilated regardless of what style the opposing offense tries to play, I'm, I'm confident Hamilton will put up points if they keep Cam Marshall involved and Dane Evans avoids red zone turnovers. Toronto's offense has enough things clicking right now that I think they should at least be able to match the explosiveness metrics that BC and Ottawa achieved in recent weeks against this Hamilton defense, and quick strikes for points could be something we see in this game, not dissimilar to what we saw out of Toronto and Montreal last week, in a game that would have easily gone over if not for the Argos crapping their pants inside the Owls' five-yard line at the end of both halves. The second half of the Labor Day Classic will cap off the week, and the host Calgary Stampeders, fresh off a of bye week, find themselves as minus three and a half favorites over their northern rivals, the Edmonton Eskimos, a line that opened at two and a half, and we've seen the total move down to 48 after a 50 and a half open. This has been a one-sided rivalry game for the better part of 15 years, and going off memory, I want to say Calgary has won about nine out of the last ten on Labor Day. So perhaps much like Winnipeg-Saskatchewan, you've got a case where the home team has a lot of history on their side, with the visitor coming in with a lot of recent heartbreaks in that stadium. The Eskimos have very few players that have been on the roster more than two or three years though, so maybe take this with a grain of salt, but I still wouldn't throw the psychological aspect of this game completely out the window. The biggest news coming into this game is once again the health of Stamps quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell, who has been somewhat surprisingly reactivated from the six-game injured list, and there appears to be a chance he will be on the field on Monday. I say surprising since the Stamps sent him back to the sixth game just two weeks ago, and there was the sense that this could be a season-threatening injury at that point. I believe the rules regarding the six-game injured list still allow teams to bring back two players per season early, so the Stamps aren't going to be hurt by this other than losing the ability to do it later in the season if they need to with somebody else. Evidently, they must be pretty tight up against the salary cap, is the only reason I can see to send Bo to the six game as opposed to having him just spend a week or two on the one game is that players on the six game don't count against the cap. But in keeping with the way I felt two weeks ago when it was uncertain who the Stampeders were going to start, I'm not sure it really makes a huge difference in this game in particular, with Nick Arbuckle continuing to provide solid play and Bo presumably needing a week or two to get back up to speed, even when he does return to the field. I think reading between the lines, Bo wants to get back out there, and if the decision was his to make, he'll be back on the field for this game. Um, Dave Dickinson and John Huffnagel, I think, want to wait until they're absolutely sure he's 100%, and it's going to come down to whether or not he can get through practices the rest of the week without any hint of being restricted in his ability to toss the football. From a strategic standpoint, I'd personally play Arbuckle on Monday and leave my options open for the rematch on Saturday. The reason for this being that if you go with Bo on Monday and his timing is off and the offense doesn't perform, you've painted yourself into a bit of a corner because you're obviously starting him again on Saturday regardless. And then you're dealing with a short turnaround and minimal practice and prep time heading into what would then be a must-win situation should you lose the first one. 
So I think I'd start Arbuckle and cross my fingers that he's got another good game in him and then make the switch for Saturday. But we'll see what unfolds over the weekend leading up to kickoff. It sounds like Kadeem Carey is also ready to get back into the lineup, and this would be a boon to Calgary's struggling run game. And unlike the Bo Levi situation where there's potential for some struggles in his first game back, Carey would probably be an instant upgrade, assuming he's at full health. So definitely make note of his inclusion or absence from the lineup if you haven't yet placed any money on this game when the depth charts get released on Sunday. These teams met in Calgary just about exactly a month ago now, a game that ended in a 24-18 Stampeders victory. Metrically, Edmonton was the better team in terms of offense and defense, and it really came down to a special teams debacle for them to lose that game. But in the ensuing weeks, some cracks have definitely started to form for a defense that looks to be drifting back to the pack a little bit after running red hot for the first six or seven weeks of the season. The heavy pressure from the defensive line is still getting there for the most part, but teams seem to have figured out where where the gaps in coverage are forming when they bring extra blitzers, and they're finding ways to pick up chunks of yardage much more regularly than they previously were. Calgary likes to stretch the field on offense and look for the home run ball, and Edmonton is going to need to run a tighter ship in coverage than they have recently to avoid getting burned by this. There was no indication from Coach Moss in his Thursday presser that he was going to make any personnel changes in the secondary, so assume the status quo, but I can't say I'm in agreement with continuing to to scratch Taekwon Glass in favor of Money Hunter, who took another boneheaded penalty last game that cost them a crucial 15 yards late in the fourth quarter. Glass was looking like a defensive rookie of the year type candidate, and one wonders just how many more chances Hunter is going to get, as discipline has always been an ongoing issue for him. Offensively, Trevor Harris in this offense continued to move the ball pretty much at will between the 30-yard lines, but again lacked finish in a game where they significantly outgained their opponent. But in terms of overall efficiency, despite 500-some yards of total offense, this unit actually graded out at below 50% against Winnipeg. They hit on a ton of explosive pass plays, but unfortunately none of those found the end zone until there was almost no time left in the ball game. The term luck gets thrown around a lot when analyzing a team's performance from a betting perspective. Any coach or player will give you the usual line about creating your own luck or denying the existence of it in the first place, but make no mistake, luck absolutely plays a role in determining the outcome of a football game, and the efficiency metrics would tell you that Edmonton's been unlucky to only have a 6-4 record despite having the best combined offensive and defensive efficiency in the CFL through the first half of the season. But there comes a point where you start asking exactly how they found a way to lose four games, and it tends to be a lot of the same ongoing problems that have dogged this team for years. The Eskimos are the worst team in the league in third and short situations, and it's not even close, so even though Trevor Harris has done an exceptional job of protecting the football this year, the turnover margin remains quite modest due to all the turnovers on downs. Third and one or shorter should be routine, and and it is for most teams. You wonder about what the thought process is to sending Harris out there to sneak it time and again, despite the number of times he's been stuffed. Other teams bring in their short yardage teams to run these plays, some of which include a change at quarterback. They've also tried to hand off in these situations a few times, with generally disastrous results. C.J. Gable isn't a guy who drags tacklers or picks up a lot of yards after contact, which doesn't make him an ideal back for these uh, these spots, so... You think at what point do you switch it up and perhaps use your veteran fullback Calvin McCarty to pick up those tough yards if you're going to insist on handing it off in third and short. 
But, but in games that come down to the last five minutes of the fourth quarter, these are the types of errors that swing the balance one way or the other. And right now, Edmonton is doing themselves no favors when it comes to small details at key points. How that ties into this number, still sitting at minus three and a half, is the crux of determining the right side in this one. I think we're helped here by having a pretty good idea of what we're going to get out of the Stampeders. This coaching staff never fails to show up prepared for a big game, be it Labor Day or otherwise, and it's no stretch to think that Dave Dickinson's guile is likely going to be worth a field goal when the dust settles. Offensively, they've shown up all year while failing to light it up. Not a great game the first time they faced the Eskimos, but still another game where they got a drive when they needed a drive and found a way. Their efficiency rating has ebbed and flowed from game to game, but the production on the scoreboard has been very consistent, landing between 23 and 28 points, you know, if you look past overtime in, in almost all of their games. With that in mind, for me it comes down to whether or not Edmonton finds it in themselves to deliver a game where they don't take points off the scoreboard with unforced errors. The Calgary defense hadn't given up a single play of 30 yards or more until the second half of that game against the Eskimos, and since then they've looked beatable downfield. I have to think the Eskimos don't wait until the third quarter to attempt to pass over 10 yards this time around, but, but this offense has only graded out over 50% in a single road game so far this year, and that was at Toronto. They also continue to get very little out of their return game. Christian Jones has definitely been an upgrade on Martise Jackson, but there was only one direction for that unit to go, so they're still only at a point where, where returns aren't an outright negative. One thing that will be different this time around is having a healthy Greg Ellingson and Devaris Daniels in the receiving core. Between these two and Ricky Collins, who continues to be the surprise lead leaguer in receiving yards, this is a potent group of receivers who haven't all been healthy at the same time this year up until very recently. I think three is probably the right number in this game. There's no reason to think this game won't be close, and Calgary has earned the benefit of the doubt right now to, to be favored by the field goal. The Eskimos find themselves at a crossroads here. It's tough to look at a back-to-back -back set and say you need to win both of them, but with the Stampeders taking the first matchup, a split would leave the Eskimos in a tight spot, just half a game up on the Stamps, who would hold the tiebreaker as well. Much like the Winnipeg-Saskatchewan matchup, it's just too difficult to trust the seldom-victorious Eskimos to come up with a win here until they prove they can get it done in a close game against an elite club. I don't think I like Calgary with the hook, if you listened last week, you'll recall me explaining why the half point attached to the number three specifically is so important. So this is probably an avoid for me at this exact number. The wild card here might be Kadeem Carey and whether or not he's, he's able to make it back into the lineup. Don Jackson and Terry Williams probably aren't doing any damage against this Edmonton defensive line, but Carey is a lot more dynamic and would present a different look for that offense. Total-wise, action towards the under on this one with the 50.5 open get, getting moved down a full field goal in some spots. If you're into long-term trends, which don't typically have predictive value in football where the rosters turn over so often, Labor Day tends to be on the lower scoring side between these two with the, the offensive fireworks usually taking place in the rematch a few days later. I think there was a little value on the under at the opening number. That's been bet out of it now. I'd watch the forecast here. It can get windy down in Calgary at this time of year, and wind tends to deflate scoring. So if you're desperate to get some action down on the total in this game, basing your decision on the wind as kickoff nears is as good a strategy as any on a pretty tight total. Oh, the best bet hasn't been anything to write home about in recent weeks is the market, which of course we're all a part of. Unfortunately, took it on the chin a little bit in the month of August. 
a lot of tough beats for the preferred side in terms of market expectations, so hopefully we see the variance kick back in the other direction. I think this week we'll go to the flatland on Sunday afternoon. I, I don't love the riders laying close to a touchdown by any means, but Winnipeg's down their top player heading into an annual rivalry game that has been an absolute horror show for them over the last 15 years. So we'll back the men in green at minus five and a half and hope Cody Fajardo can channel some inner Rocky Butler magic. And props to you if you understand that reference. If not, I'll take a quick moment to remind you that Rocky Butler was the fourth string, yes, the fourth string quarterback, that got the call from Danny Barrett, I want to say this was maybe back in 2003, and led the Riders to victory over the Kahari Jones, Charles Roberts Blue Bombers in one of the more memorable Labor Day upsets that I can recall offhand. Alright, that will do it for this week's edition of Third Down Gamble. Thanks to everyone who continues to listen. I appreciate all the positive feedback that I've been receiving. And remember, if you want to get in touch, hit me up on Twitter at KDrive88 or check out the website at firstlinepicks.com, which I can now officially say has some NCAA football content starting to appear as the college season gets fully underway this weekend as well. Best of luck with your bets this long weekend. Hopefully we're all starting the second half of the season off on the right foot, and we'll see you next week.